Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO and SB Live Sports with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, on the Believe Podcast Network conversations with experts in the field of sports, usually basketball coaches, players, executives. Today's is going to, I'm sure, share some very good insight on the recruiting process, the ability and direction of AAU programs, how they can help kids and families, especially during this COVID time, and some experiences from his time in the NBA. Middle six magic out of the Boston area's director, Mike Crotty. Mike, it's been a while since we've seen each other face-to-face. I know we text occasionally. How was life in the Boston area? Life is good, and it's great to see you, too. Uh, it has been a while since our uh, time getting to know each other with the Celtics, but life is good. Uh, our program is doing well, and I got a, I got a small family, which I know you had way back then. Now, now they're older, so we have two sons, and uh, everything is going well. You know, you met, I mentioned in the open uh, your AAU program. It's something that uh, I remember you talking about years ago when we spent time with the Celtics organization together. Um, is something that your father started, and you've taken it and continue to build it and grow it. And from what I know, uh, up in that northeast pocket of the country, you guys are one of the most well-respected and well-run AAU organizations. Where did the passion come from you to take what your father started and build upon it? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Thank you. I, he started in 93. I was a kid and AAU was smaller than obviously it's really become a massive uh, industry now. For me, after three years with the Celtics, which I know we'll probably talk about a little bit, I I knew basketball was going to be a part of my world and I, I, I needed it to be a part of my world, but I wasn't sure about trying to become an NBA coach or a college coach because of the the nomadic lifestyle of of just the next job maybe anywhere in the country. And um, I loved seeing what my dad had done. You know, he worked in a different industry. This is something he started just to help kids, but it was starting to grow. And um, unfortunately, when he passed in 2010, he and I were coaching a couple teams together. I kept it going for a year just without thinking. And I, I realized my passion was really one and the same with what he had, which was to help kids at a really important time in their life with their confidence, with their skill development as players and help them become recruited athletes to get to college. Um, never knowing if we'd have any NBA players in our program, um, having scholarship players, having non-scholarship players, but so many college kids. That's the part that I really share the passion with him was just getting to know these kids, their families, that relationship development at what I think is just such a really important time in terms of the trajectory of how they're going to use basketball to help their life. You use the term scholarship versus non-scholarship players. And I don't think a lot of or enough parents and high school coaches and high school players understand the difference between the two. You can be a tremendous college basketball player and have an opportunity to have a great experience, get a degree, and be considered a quote-unquote non-scholarship player versus being a quote-unquote scholarship player and kind of have a, a poor experience. In your experiences, kind of break down the difference between the Division II, the Division Three level, which, um, you know, not very many people 
understand uh, right. because that's where a lot of your players in your program end up. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, so at this juncture, you know, we've got really good depth in our junior program and we've, we're averaging somewhere between six to eight division one scholarship players here. Maybe there's a division two scholarship player. There's not a lot of division two schools. So there's over 400 division one schools There's over 450 division three schools. Division two is a smaller cut. There just aren't that many of them. And it's a kind of a particular slice, but to your question, you know, Division ones have 13 scholarships. Many division twos have 10. What some of those division twos might not have 10 all athletic. They may, they may grab academic money. If kids have very high academic, um, you know, GPA standardized test score. And then division three, there is no scholarship money. Um, so, you know, in our region, we have a, a number of very high academic division three schools. I was lucky enough to attend one of them in the Northwest corner of Massachusetts called Williams college. So, you know, what that means is even if you're a great basketball player and you're recruited to play there, they cannot give you scholarship money because of your athletic prowess. They only going to give you money based upon financial aid need um, as, as most regular applying students at any school would get. Um, the difference though, is that these schools are so remarkably competitive to get into that if you are a recruited basketball player, you, your grades and tests still need to meet a certain score. Um, but you use your athletics paired with that strong academic standing to gain admission to a school like a Williams. There's many schools in the Northeast. There's many schools in the Midwest, all over the country, really. But uh, we are, we are kind of littered with a bunch of them in, in, uh, in the Northeast. There's a couple of specific conferences that have a lot. And so I got to, I got to walk that path myself as someone that had a division two scholarship offer to a very solid school and then decided to, you know, go the path of playing division three because of the, the academics of, of that, of Williams. And then they also had a very strong basketball program. So I now get to help shepherd so many kids every year through this process. Um, we have 17 committed kids in our 21 class. We had 30 kids from college in, in 2020. And, you know, that's seven division one, two division two, and, you know, 21 division three. And so I, I feel in a good position to help these kids with that process because I have been able to help kids go to the division one level, the division two level and the division three level and getting to understand the nuances of each where a kid would best fit. And that's really our goal. And, and I would hope it's the goal of many programs is just that your players find the best fit. Um, you know, some programs are all just about high major or that, you know, and, We've had high major guys and, and maybe not as many as, as, as some others, but when those guys, uh, if that's where they aspire to and they have the ability, we can help them get there. But to be able to understand how high a level Division two and Division three basketball is and the extra pieces to some of the academic parts um, is something that I feel like the Middlesex Magic and, and I are pretty well equip, equipped to help our players and our families understand. You know, the way you described kind of the evaluation or the thought process to go through uh, was, quite frankly, one of the best that I've heard from somebody in regards to, to considering D2 versus D3. Um, and that's important because you run a program, as you mentioned, that has kids at multiple different levels that are sorting that out. You had a tremendous career at the Division three level. Um, you mentioned off camera before we started recording – your junior year, you guys won the national title at that level. Your senior year, you played in the title game again. What was 
your goal once you got to college? Because so many kids, and rightfully so, set huge goals and dreams. I want to play in the NBA. I want to play overseas, this, that, and the other. Sure. When you got to the Division three level, what became your driving passion in the game of basketball? It's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I deal with a lot of kids now that have Division one aspirations and they're academic-minded, so they shoot for the Ivy League, they shoot for the Patriot League. You know, when you get to bigger schools that are great academics, you know, Stanford, Notre Dame, Vanderbilt, like that's a high level of basketball, so maybe that's out of their reach. Once I had made my decision to go to, to Williams, um, you know, I was still just a worker and someone that wanted to be as good as I could be. But I looked up to a couple of players growing up who did go and play professionally overseas. And I don't mean that, to, to, you know, they went overseas. And I, I didn't know what that meant when I was a high school kid in 2000. Um, but I said, I want to do that. And, and, but ultimately at Williams, they had been to the final four twice. They, they had some, they had a legendary coach and program, really strong program. So, from a team perspective, like, yeah, I, want, I wanted to be part of helping lead a team to a national title. I, I wanted to start all four years. I wanted to be a D3 All-American. I wanted to do a lot of things. And I played with a lot of really good players. And, you know, luckily for me, I was, I was, I was able to achieve most of those things. Like, I was able to start for four years. We were 104 wins and 16 losses. And that time I started every game. And, you know, in the last two years, we were 61 and three. Um, I was able to make the All-American team twice. And, you know, I, I, I had so many good teammates. I had 800 assists, 1,400 points. For me, that's something I say to my, my kids now. Like, I just want to play D1. I'm like, having a career at the right spot, in my opinion, for me, that would have been best. If I was sitting on a bench in Division One, I, I would have been unhappy. Some people are wired that they can do that. They just want to be a part of it. Um, but for me, I found the right fit where I could, by busting my tail, make an impact right away. We had seven guys on, on my team that turned down scholarship opportunities because of the basketball program Williams and because of the school. So those were my goals, you know, the individual side, but really the team side was what can we do? And, and, you know, I know you played on some remarkable teams, you know, at any level, when you get to sweet 16s, elite eights, the first, the year we won at my junior year, we, we made our way to the final four and we had to beat our arch rival to do it. And, and we did it kind of emphatically in the second half. And you're cutting down nets to go to the final four, and you're not really thinking, oh my, like, oh my God, we're going to the final four. Who are we playing? We're playing these teams from all over now, even though Division Three is a little more regionalized in the NCAA tournament. You know, once it's, you know, we had the teams in our final four were from uh, Ohio, Minnesota, and uh, Virginia and Massachusetts. And we went down there and played two two point games. We won on a tip in at the buzzer in overtime in the semis, and then we won by two on two free throws with 2.7 seconds left in the final. Um, so that was an amazing experience. And then my senior year, we brought back four starters, but we did lose some very important pieces, but we brought back four starters. So we were sort of the perennial number one. We only had one loss all year. We beat Holy Cross in a regular season game at Holy Cross, which was a great experience to play a D1 team and beat them. And sort of, I think that speaks to the level D3 can be when you're really good. And then, but that whole year, we're like, we're going to win. We went back to the final four. We had to play our arch rival again at the final four. They actually sent them out of region. We beat them again. And then we lost 84-82 in just a great game to Wisconsin Stevens Point. And we had beaten Gustavus Adolphus. So we played some great Midwest teams. And um, the experience was unbelievable. Um, and our, our guys, you know, more than a couple from that group went on to play professionally overseas. Um, three or four of us did that for at least a year or two. So I think, I think that was my goal, Dan, long-term. was like, hey, I want to be a professional basketball player. 
I didn't know how to do that, how, how it could happen. Um, and it was interesting path how I got there, but it was really because we had so many good players and had such great team success. And then some good opportunities came my way after that. You mentioned the right fit and you found the right fit for you. You had a tremendous playing career that kind of, you know, checked all the boxes for you. Um, You've had helped over 400 players get to the college level. Two names kind of that, that pop out at you when you look at your, your, your website. Uh, I obviously can see the frame jerseys behind you um, would be Duncan Robinson and Pat Connaughton, you know, uh, knowing enough about those guys reading articles, they both had different paths. Pat Connaughton division one, right off the bat, Duncan Robinson takes the division three route. And then he quote unquote bets on himself, goes to Michigan. And now is one of the best shooters in the world and, and, and was in, in the NBA finals with the Miami heat. Right. When you were walking those two guys through the, their process, did you envision each of them getting to the level that they're at now? I always joke with Duncan and people say, could you see us? I'm like, of course, you know, Williams, Michigan, I, you know, Miami Heat, how, how could you not see that? Um, start with Pat because he was first. You know, Pat is a remarkable athlete. Anything he does, it's ridiculous. And, uh, and you and I have played some golf together, and I, I know how good you are. So maybe you, me, and Pat can play someday because he can really play, and I've gotten, I've gotten a bit better. So uh, Pat, well, the minute we got him, it was, it was, he was just a different level of athlete, uh, physically, vertically. My dad and I got to coach him together for a year and a half, and my dad and him developed a great relationship. And, um, and my dad really believed in his ability to play at the highest level. My dad passed. It was in February going into that AAU spring where, you know, things eventually happened. And Pat, it's pretty well documented for him too. Like he didn't have a ton of D1 offers really early. And then he had scholarship offers to BC and Notre Dame and a few others to play baseball because he threw 93 miles an hour. And I, said with, I sat with him and his dad, Len, and I said, what do you want to do? Like, what do you, you want to do? And he said, uh, I want to play basketball at the level where I'm getting baseball offers. And um, – you know, I knew coaches at BC and Notre Dame in particular. I made some phone calls. Notre Dame came and well, they both came and watched. And Notre Dame was very interested at in our first July live period tournament. And uh, I'll never forget Rod Bolanis, who's still there with Mike Bray. He wrote me a note. He said, he's one tough SOB. And I remember saying to my, my coaches, I was like, what does that mean for Notre Dame? Like, does that mean you want to offer? You know, I, it, I hadn't been through that many go-arounds without my dad. And, and, um, and Pat was a bit of a unique guy. You know, the rest of that summer, Pat blew up. He wound up with 40-plus high major offers and, um, and went on to Notre Dame where he, could, where he played baseball and basketball and got drafted to the Orioles. And obviously, he's, he's going to go into his sixth year in the NBA uh, coming up this year. So, Pat, Pat's your ultimate competitor um, who would do whatever it takes. He's a two-guard in the NBA who played the four for four years at Notre Dame because he was so athletic and so tough that he could guard Carl, Carl Anthony Towns in an Elite Eight game and then down the other end and make a big guy try to chase him off the drive and shooting threes. I'm, I don't think Notre Dame's offense has ever been as good as it was with him and Jaron Grant and Vesturia and, uh, you know, Zach August and DJ. Those guys, that was a great team. It was a, a heartbeat away from the Final Four. So, you know, his path was interesting. And then he had to completely kind of try to become a two-guard. I think what he does athletically is so crazy. I don't, I, mean, I don't think many people could play the four in college and become a two-guard. So his path was that, and it was sort of that, you know, really cool rise. Um, Duncan was obviously very different. Um, you know, when he came to play for our team, 
Um, we had uh, we had two other Division One like bona fide hands down Division One players on that team, and Duncan's personality wasn't one to like try and contend to be the alpha. You know, he he thought they were the two best players, and sometimes they were, and sometimes he was, and the rest of our group was good too. Some other really good college players, but um, you know, he was six six and a half going into that post grad year, one seventy, and. He played well. He was battling a little bit of like a tweak back, as I recall, in that July. So like he had some games where it was a little a little stiff, but he played really well. Michigan didn't miss him. Like Michigan wasn't – he wasn't quite ready then. Um, I think maybe some other Division ones might have. The, a lower-level Division one maybe should have been able to take a look. At, and I'm not saying that's an easy task. <laughs> I'm not criticizing. But he shot it really well, and he had great basketball instincts. Uh, I think people at the division one level, you know, how big and strong can he get? Like, who, you know, where will he guard people? All those questions that do matter, but sometimes I think are overthought. Um, so when when Ivy Leagues weren't coming for him because he's a great student, he started looking at division threes. And again, a path I walked and he had Williams and Amherst and a number of others. And he really loved Williams. Um, I didn't push him there as an alum, but I wasn't upset when he selected to go there. And he had a you know, his year at Exeter then, he made goes early decision. That year at Exeter, he grows like an inch. And now by the end of the year in their championship game, they go, they beat teams class higher and they win class A title. And he's perfect from the floor in the game. He scores 24 points, doesn't miss a shot from three, two free throws. And he's like six, seven, like 180. And people are like, oh boy. So some of the division ones tried to sneak in. He was committed to early decision to Williams. So he goes. To, to make that story a little quicker, he has an amazing year at Williams. One of the greatest years anyone's ever had there. Better than any year I ever had there in four. And they go to the national title game and they lose at the buzzer. Um, they, again, they beat their arch rival in the semifinal. He had 30 against them. He has 18 uh, with double teams in the finals. And on the year, he was a 50, 40, 90 guy, average 18 points. He was a national rookie of the year, like a fourth team All-American. He would have been higher if he wasn't a freshman. Their coach accepts a job to take a division one job at Marist as the head coach after the year. And he says to him, I'd like to take you to Marist. And he said, you know, thank you, but I'm academically Williams is a special place. And then the coach said, well, I worked for John Beeline at West Virginia. That coach is Mike Maker. And he said, I'm going to call John Beeline. And Beeline will still say to this day, it's the first guy he's offered off of film. But he said, hey, if you get 30 in a national semi, that's a big thing no matter the level. Uh, they played similar offense. He could see him within the offense. And, and so he took him. And by that time, Duncan was 6'8", 183, 4, whatever. Goes through the redshirt year. He's 204 pounds. He's a different human being physically. And I think his skills were always there. They continue to develop, but the body development was huge. And not everybody goes from 6'6", 173 to 6'8", 205 in a two-and-a-half-year span. He did. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about quite as much. It's obvious when you see him, the pitchers when he played for us or when he played at Williams, he's, he's thin uh, and he's a different guy now. So um, has a great career at Michigan, undrafted. The Heat loved him. The Lakers loved him. A bunch of people wanted him to go to summer league. He felt comfortable with the Heat. They signed him to a two-way after like three games because he was killing it. And, uh, you know, he does his two-way year. And then last year was his second year in the league and he's a starter and he's breaking all sorts of three-point records. And um, and obviously, you know, I, I saw a great uh, kind of image on Instagram. It was Steph Curry, nine, Ray Allen, eight, and Duncan Robinson, seven, for most threes made in an NBA Finals game. And um, 
if you told us that when he was 17 playing for the Magic, might have been a little harder to to just immediately <laughs> agree with. Yeah. You know, if you told me Pat was going to make it to the NBA when he was 17, I, I still would have been like, wow. But, you know, he had some obvious physical ability. Uh, but Duncan's ability to shoot it uh, has always been there. So I always say, look, if ever I coach another NBA player, and I, I think I may have coached one with Cormac Ryan, who's going to be a sophomore at Notre Dame. He went to Stanford and transferred. He'll be playing this year. Um, you, you never know. Like, I, I, you don't know that. It's, 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 you know, it's, you know, the percentages. You did it yourself. It's beyond uh, less than a percent. So anyone who says they know. But my joke when people ask me, what were they like? I'm like, well, Pat couldn't jump and Duncan couldn't shoot. I had to teach them how to do those things. But um, obviously not the case. They, they were awesome. And I think they're going to be in the league for a long, long time. Well, I, you can tell the passion that you have uh, for the guys that you've coached, not only guys that have made it to the pinnacle of the sport in, in Robinson and Connaughton, but also, you know, kind of the way you've described how you've helped kids figure out their correct path in their correct level for them. What sets your program apart from others in your estimation? Because, you know, I, I talk to AU coaches and directors and college coaches all the time, and I ask similar questions. What separates yours from another? So what would separate your program and how you do things? Yeah. I think the biggest thing is our coaches. We have a number of college-level and high school-level coaches that are involved in our program, specifically in high school. Uh, we, we have some remarkable coaches at youth, middle, elementary um, as well, guys that could coach high school, whether it's their sons are down there and they're helping former college coaches and things of that nature. But at the high school level, I think it's just paramount to have high quality coaching so that they can take 10 very ambitious young men and put them together as a unit. When people think of AAU, most of what you see is not structured ball, not sharing it. I'm going to go. I don't have it. Kick it to you. You're going to go. We are distinctly different in that regard. Um, some teams that will recruit against my program if they're trying to get a guy who say, oh, they're just a system and – and I say, that's a great compliment to me. That's them saying our coaching is better, but we're not a system. We're great players and talented players. We defend as a group. We get a stop and we'll race out hard and take quick, fast shots. I think where we differentiate, you know, schematically offensively is that we will then flow into some real motion offense. Um, a, lot of, a lot of Gonzaga stuff, actually, people will call when they see it, some high ball screen motion. Um, and then, yes, over the course of the year, we'll have eight to 10 sets so that if if Dan makes a three organically in transition and Dan makes a three organically in motion offense, we can call his number six times in a row against a team that has not scouted us in a tournament in Atlantic city or wherever. And that kid's going to hit seven in a row. And those coaches are going to be like, Holy smokes. And that's how it happens. Often you see kids hit a couple shots. They don't touch the ball for five possessions because someone else is doing their thing. So yeah, we have continuity about our program that I think differentiates and then as it pertains to getting to the next level, like anything, like how does a great program, you know, it starts to recruit itself. Like why does Gonzaga get great players? Well, a program has been built. So if you're a great player in that area, you want to go there and then beyond and nationally. In AAU, we can't, of course, recruit nationally. But in our region, you know, having so many guys every year going to play in college, having our second junior team, our third junior team, which – are not B teams. They play at the highest division one level of tournament play as, as our top group, having those guys go to college after a while, the proof's in the pudding. Like, Hey, you had 30 guys go to college. I, you know, kids will look around and say, I, I don't think there's anywhere else I want to be. And there's a lot of other great programs in our region, a lot that I have great respect for, 
but that's how we try to differentiate ourselves by having great coaching. Um, and then, you know, look, in, in one of my big jobs is to keep my connectivity with college coaches at all those levels, whether it be traveling to games. Um, you know, my dad a long time ago started uh, a gathering at the Final Four, the New England Coaches Party, which we still do. It's just great to stay connected with them and those relationships matter. So sometimes your day might not be, oh, I have this meeting, that meeting, that meeting. You may wind up having five phone calls with coaches where you're catching up. But those relationships matter. And then when you tell them you believe a player is good enough and they see it with their own eyes and you're not lying to them and those players pan out, you build that trust. And I think over 28 years, my dad and now myself, that trust is really strong because if a player isn't good enough, we don't try to tell a coach he is. We want them to find the right fit um, and we stump hard for them, but always at the right level. So I think those are the big keys. I like the description of how you, you kind of give the overall philosophy of how you've built the program and kept the program at, at a high level. Obviously you, you played and then you go overseas and I believe you played for a year, did some touring of different things, but at some point the ball stops for everybody. Right. And right. you got the chance growing up in the Boston area to work for the Boston Celtics. And that's how you and I became connected. We, we, we bonded over the game of basketball that we both love. And now to this day, we, we stay in touch with different text messages and, and sure. conversations like this. What was your role like with the Celtics having yeah. grown up there wanting, I can only imagine to be a part and get to know that organization. Yeah. I mean, it was everything, you know, um, I played a year overseas in Germany. I came back, um, I had ability to email some of the ownership. My dad had coached some of their kids and I'd emailed a summer's past if there was anything, any internships. And the answer was, you know, kind of repeatedly, Hey, thanks, but we don't have anything. And then, and then I got a call from one of the owners said, Hey, you know, Danny Ainge could use an intern for the summer to get ready for the draft. And um, I was home in April. So I was kind of there and the team hadn't made the playoffs. So April, May, June, getting ready for the draft, which is usually the end of June. So, I was, you know, this is 05. So I'm, I'm turning VHS into DVD. Um, and then all of a sudden a player would come in and they'd be like, oh yeah, help rebound. Oh, okay. You know, Paul, Paul Pierce is here. I got rebound for Paul Pierce. I was rooting for him five months ago or five weeks ago in a game. And um, so getting to, getting to be around the guys a little bit there was cool. The draft occurs. We took Gerald Green. We took Ryan Gomes. Um, and I remember the week after um, getting ready, going toward July 4th, I just kept going to the facility and, uh, and nobody was there. And I was just, you know, punching my code in and going in and I would work out, you know, and I was planning to try and play another year. And I just kept going in. <laughs> I was like, nobody's here, but I'm going to go. It's, it's still a cool place to be. And, and um, Danny called me shortly after the fourth and, and he called me in for a meeting and he said, Hey, we have a role, the director of player development. Um, there's going to be some league wide meetings. I need you to attend. There's going to be some off the court developmental pieces that we're looking at. Um, and outside of that, I just kind of want you to help doc and the staff as sort of like an assistant coach. And, um, and you know, there's a really small amount of money we can pay you to do that. But, but anyway, I, I just, I, I was, I said, okay, you know, thank you. I, I just want to talk with my, my dad and my mom and, but yes, I'm in, you know, yeah. I, that, that was, that was kind of a dream come true, Dan. I mean, to, to your question, like yeah. Celtics work for the Celtics in, in basketball operations. Um, so many, Sports organizations are, are just revered by their fan base. And uh, I'm a basketball kid from the Boston area. I mean, the Celtics, I vaguely remember the end of the Bird years. You, know, you go through some of the rough times in the late 90s. And, um, and then 
it, you know, Paul and Antoine had a moment there where they came back against the Nets and, but we hadn't really got back to championship level. So to join the team, even though we weren't great at the time, was a, was a dream come true. Um, and, uh, you know, I spent three years there um, to give a, you know, a quick piece. You know, in 05, 06, we were pretty bad. Um, and, and then Pierce got hurt. He had a stress reaction. I won't forget this. Unless this was 06, 06, 07 when you were there. But one of the two years, no, I think it was the first year, and he's out. And we lose 18 in a row. And you're just, you know, you've been, you were in the NBA for a long time, longer than my three years. It's a grind. And you don't, even, you don't even kind of think. It's the next game, the next scouting report, the next whatever. And next thing you know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, we lost 15 straight. And then it's 18. Pierce comes back, and we beat the Bucks on a step-back shot at the buzzer that he took. And then he goes back on the shelf and we lose another dozen. And all I remember thinking was, I'm so happy we didn't lose 31 games in a row <laughs> because that would have set a mark for futility. Um, you know, I then get to meet you the, the next year. Um, and I, as I recall, I think you played 20 games before you uh, tore your Achilles, right? Yep. And, um, and more, another just host of injuries. And, and it was another tough year, win-loss column. Um, uh, one one story I kind of tell because I got thrust into practice at times, as you might recall, with you and other people being out going against a Rondo, a Telfair, having, you know, you others. People were like, "What's that like?" And I was like, um, "You know, it's really humbling, right?" They're like, "Well, what's the difference between you and Dan Dickow? You're the same size." I'm like, "We're not the same size. We might be the same height. We're not the same size, but to realize the athletic ability, uh, specifically with you, dexterity, and some of the drill work we would do, where you would." catch passes with one hand, wrap them around the back on the move. I remember doing some of that drill work with you. Um, and it was, uh, it was a great learning experience for me. I like to think I was helpful to the guys over the years. But as a young coach, I wasn't in there barking at Dan Dickow or Kevin Garnett about footwork. These are, these are you know, you guys are established pros who have had great uh, experiences. It was a great experience for me and in, uh, in getting to know you, which maybe we'll talk about later that year. It was a lot of fun. Then we get to year three where we don't win the lottery for Odin or Durant. And then Danny, Danny starts making trades, right? Trades that led to Garnett coming and Ray Allen, free agent signings like Eddie House, um, uh, James Posey, eventually uh, P.J. Brown, and 66 and 16, and, and, and a, an amazing journey to the NBA title. And then kind of capped off my three years with the hometown team with a, with a championship ring. Um, you know, to go with my national championship ring from college, I was like, I felt really lucky to uh, to have been a part of so many good basketball experiences. And um, those three years, I cherish the relationships, uh, you know, with you. Scalabrini is still in our area. I see him from time to time, um, you know, and, and a number of people throughout the Celtic organization from all sides. You know, I got to coach Danny Ainge's kids subsequently in AAU, Rich Gotham, Sean Sullivan's kids I've coached. Um, now Brad Stevens, Larinaga, um, Jamie Young's kid has been in our program. We've had a lot of Celtic connectivity dating back to my dad and, and now with us. So I still feel really connected. And, and obviously they're a team I root for along with uh, the Bucks and the Heat um, with Pat and Duncan. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, was a, it was an amazing thing, especially for somebody who grew up rooting for the team. I want to ask you a little bit about Brad Stevens later on. But before I forget, I want to quickly ask you about a couple – players um with the boston celtics so 
you spent three years there, but you obviously grew up around Boston. And as you mentioned, kind of that aura of the Boston Celtic parquet and the titles. Who would have been your favorite player growing up? So Bird, for sure. But I was born in 81. So, you know, I remember him hitting his head on the ground against the Pacers. I don't remember him being the MVP of the championship. I, I don't – I had to watch – you know, I know those vividly now from watching it. But my favorite Celtic, you know, it was, a we, it was a weird time at the back end of the 80s, early 90s. I liked Kevin Gamble, which is a name people – not a lot of people will remember. He was a good player when we were not outstanding. Um, but my – so – as happens when your hometown team isn't great, right? You, you start to look around the league and obviously that was a, a guy in Chicago was a lot of people's favorite. Um, my favorite player of all time, I'm sure you know him well, I got to meet him, is John Stockton. Um, and uh, I'm sure there's, there's so many obvious links between you two guys, but he was, I remember aspiring to play. I remember watching Bobby Hurley for Duke and being like, wait a minute, wait a minute maybe I can do that, yeah. you know? And, and I remember watching Stockton and just being mesmerized at how he dominated games from that position. Uh, so he became my favorite player. And through the 90s, I, you know, I felt the heartbreak that many, that Jordan and, and his crew gave to many when they beat him a couple of times. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, then before I got to working for the Celtics, it was difficult not to like Paul Pierce, you know, when he became a Celtic in the early 2000s. And to be able to be around him for three years and get to know him personally was great. Yeah, I enjoyed being teammates with Paul for that short stint before I got hurt. When you look at the three years that you were there, you had a lot of personalities that you would have been around on a day-to-day -day basis. Brian Scalabrini being one, Paul Pierce, Kevin yep. Garnett, Rondo. Yep. Any yep. of those guys stand out to you as being, you know, maybe their persona to the public is much different than what they're truly like? Yeah, I think a couple. Um, you know, Rondo – uh, his first two years in the league, or, or it was my second and third year with the team, and, and, then, and then I left. Rondo's a, an amazing guy and a really generous guy. I spent a lot of time shooting with him in the facility late at night uh, or rebounding for him <laughs> while he shot. And, um, you know, I think he's had some parts in his career where he's looked at as a, oh, he's a troublemaker or he's a malcontent. Um, and maybe he has been at times. I, in the two years I was there, he wasn't. He was uh, the perfect person to stir the drink with three first ballot hall of famers uh it was amazing how they clicked and obviously him and kevin had a great relationship and kevin could really um understand rondo's emotions that would flare up at times because kevin of course is like that so watching that was pretty great um but rondo's an awesome guy and and obviously a winner i mean you know he was a very it was a amazingly integral part of what LA just did as everyone saw. And so I'm really thrilled to see it come full circle for him. I, I loved Ron though. We spent a lot of time together. Garnett, um, you know, a quick anecdote I've told some of my friends, you know, we played a, uh, you know, Garnett's more intense than you could write about, right? It's, an, yeah. it's incredible. But you get people throughout the year in different moments on planes, on buses. Um, you know, we went to Rome and London for training camp. You get some real personal experiences riding on a bus with him and Bill Russell to an NBA Cares event, watching them talk. I remember the conversation they had during the finals that year they taped. I got to see the real one with no, with no footage. And, you know, what Kevin said to me was after a, a, a preseason game in Worcester. We used to do them in Worcester, you remember, in Mohegan Sun in Connecticut to get the rest of the New England fan base. And we stopped the game at halftime because it was really wet. And, uh, I'm like washing my face and he was coming out of this little, you know, he had finished showering and he's got a towel around, he's drying off. And 
and I'm, I'm just me and him are in the room, this tiny facility in Worcester, not an NBA arena. And I remember just, it's like an intense thing. I've only known him for a couple months and I'm like, I just want to wash my face and get the heck out of here. He, you know, and I start to leave and, and uh, he said, Hey Mike, I said, yeah. He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 26 years old. He said, you know, I've been watching you a lot since I got here, summer training camp, Rome, London here. He goes, I've been watching you sometimes when you didn't even know I was watching. And Dan, I'm like, what is this guy going to say? I mean, I'm like, there's like a little internal sweat. He's yeah, Kevin Garnett. Yeah. I mean, got one towel around. He's drying himself. He's just talking to me. I'm like, okay. And he goes, you know, you're watching, you're learning. A lot of people run their mouths just to hear themselves speak. He goes, and I see you watching and learning. And I think you're going to be a great coach someday. And I was like, whoa. You know, and, uh, and I said back to him, thank you very much. And he quickly snapped back. Ain't no effing compliment is what it is. And that's classic Kevin, as I got to know. And I said, uh, well, coming from you, that felt like a compliment. And, um, you know, as you got to know my person, I am starting to leave. And I, I said, all right, you know, I'm getting to know him. And I said, hey, Kevin, you know what? I've been watching you a lot over the last few months. I've been watching you when you didn't know I was watching you. I said, I think if you keep it up, I think you might just be a Hall of Fame player someday. And he, he, he he's drying off. He goes, Okay, you funny too. And, and we laughed. And, and so the next day, uh, we had practice and he comes in, players are very, you know, creatures of habit. And he came in, he said, Hey, Armand, Hey, Tibbs, Hey, Doc, Hey, Mike. And he stopped. He said, Oh, no, no. He said, No, no, no. He goes, You got to see it to believe it. And he gave me a bump. He said, What's up, coach? And he called me coach the whole year. And he called every other coach by their name, which is just what he did. But that's all he would call me. And um, as a 26 year old guy, uh, aspiring as a coach, aspiring uh, to have Kevin Garnett give, you know, kind of infuse a little confidence into me. Um, I'll never forget that. Um, and I've told some of my friends that story. I've never told that story in like a public forum like this, but that's a side of Kevin Garnett most people aren't going to see. And he was, uh, he was great to me. Uh, that's a great story. And, and that does speak to, you know, there are so many guys at the NBA level that are willing and able and do help up and comers in the industry, whether it's a coach, whether it's, uh, you know, another young player. Uh, and, and that's awesome to hear. Last question before I let you go, Mike, um, sure. you had mentioned off camera and then you touched on it a little bit that Brad Stevens um, uh, and a number of other players and or coaches that have been involved with the Celtics uh, organization have had sons come up through your program. Yeah. What is it like coaching when you have a Brad Stevens, who I think is a genius at the game of basketball, putting guys in the right position, right. watching you coach? Do you have a little bit of nervousness? And then do they ever come after the game and be like, hey, Mike, we need to talk about that. <laughs> I saw something here we need to work on. Right. I, I, again, joke with my friends who mentioned that. I'm like, no, I'm like, look, these coaches are asking me. I'm actually putting uh, – blobs and sideline out of bounds in their in their mailbox you know I'm trying to help them obviously a joke so Brad's son is a ninth grader he's a very good player with with uh I think good prospects it's interesting that team has a number of other great coaches sons uh the BU coach's son uh Joe Jones is on that team the head coach at Southern New Hampshire Jack Perry's son is on that team um assistant coach Lyra Nega of the Celtics kid is on that team um, another great player on this team. Dad was a great player at Bentley. We have like this team full of great basketball dads. And um, 
I coached the 10th and the 11th grade. So to answer your question, I don't know yet because they haven't quite got to me. Now I've had them in clinics, I've had them in the gym, but uh, we've had an excellent coach who's been with them. And I, I joked to them, I said, hey, look, you know, when he came on the coach, I said, parents ever need to talk to you, send them my way. I deal with that stuff. I said, but in this instance, if any of them want to help you out with, with, some, uh, with some offense or defensive schemes, you, you listen to them. And we kind of joke, uh, no, no pressure at all. I mean, specifically with Brad, who I agree with you in terms of his genius in, in the game. Um, he's just as down to earth as, as, as he seems to everyone every time he's interviewed. Wonderfully nice guy with, um, with just, uh, you know, loves to watch his kid play like anybody else and didn't get to as much this past time with the bubble. But um, no, I'll have to answer that question the next time we talk once I get to Coach Brady in the game. Hopefully I'll, hopefully I'll push the right buttons uh, offensively and uh, try to do some good stuff that can uh, be uh, admired by that great coaching uh, crew that we have. Awesome. Well, Mike, I appreciate the time. I wish you and your family continued health and, and your magic program back in the Boston area continued success. It was great to reconnect, talk some hoops, talk AAU, talk the evaluation and the recruiting process at many different levels. So for the ISO, I'm Dan Dickow in SB Live Sports. Today's guest was Mike Crotty. The ISO with Dan Dickow in SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.